This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Monastery. Quick, picture a martial artist. What do you see? We're guessing it's someone like Jackie Chan or Jet Li or Bruce Lee or Mr. Miyagi or Korra the Avatar or Poe the Panda. Because generally, when you think about martial arts, you think about Asia or cartoons that take place in fiction Asia. And so, it would probably surprise you if we mentioned Hannibal, Eric the Red, and Alexander the Great, wouldn't it? But yes, the Carthaginian, the Viking leader, and the Macedonian king of Greece were all martial artists. That's because the phrase martial art doesn't mean what you think it means. A martial art is a codified fighting system that also usually includes a code of ethics or other guidance on how to live the proper life of the warrior. By that definition, many, many people on earth, from the Buddha Siddhartha Gautama to every Spartan hoplite to ever raise a dory, were martial artists. And it's easy enough to understand why. I mean, we know what an art is. An art is a skill or craft acquired and honed through practice. And the word martial? Well, that comes from the name Mars. Mars, as in the Roman god of war. Truth be told, any disciplined combat style is a martial art. And for many long years of human history, that's what the phrase meant. Using that definition, we have records of some pretty old martial artists. Specifically, we have cave paintings in Spain depicting organized groups of soldiers and archers that date back to almost 10,000 BCE. And if you don't want to count that, you can point at the hieroglyphics and murals describing ancient Egyptian boxing that originate in 4,000 BCE. Both of those predate the oldest of Asian martial arts, the Chinese arts of Shui Jiao wrestling and pole fighting that were first codified by the Emperor Huang Di in 2600 BCE. But round about the 19th century CE, the phrase martial art started to become associated exclusively with Eastern or Asian martial arts in the West. And that was for a number of reasons. It began, of course, with the opening of more extensive trade between the West and the East. By that time, in the West, the idea of a warrior or martial arts lifestyle had died out. In Europe, in the Middle Ages, prominent martial arts were those practiced by knights and by longbowmen. Both required extensive training, and both groups also lived by a specific warrior code. You might remember our discussion of chivalry. So the idea of a martial art was a pretty weak idea in Europe and the Americas, except where it lingered in the sports of fencing and boxing. But in the East, the idea of a martial arts lifestyle had endured, especially in China. And that may be because the Eastern martial arts are generally about more than warfare. Many include a spiritual component or a health benefit. And so, gradually, the phrase martial art became synonymous with any of the many, many combat styles from China, Japan, Korea, India, and Southeast Asia. Why are we bringing this up when the word of the week is monastery? Well, the thing is, you just can't talk about monks and monasteries with a gamer and not end up in a discussion about martial arts, because monks are the vehicle by which martial arts have been drawn into every edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Sort of. After a fashion. 
along with a lot of other weirdness. But there is another reason, too. Whereas in martial arts, there is this sort of weird divide between East and West that isn't really a divide at all. When it comes to monasteries, the divide between Eastern and Western traditions is all too real. It's as real as the difference between Friar Tuck and Li Mu Bai. But let's get this out of the way first. A monastery is a place for monks. It is a building or compound in which a community of spiritual seekers live in partial or complete seclusion and live in accordance with a spiritual code or a set of religious vows. Monks are the people who live in monasteries. Which seems obvious, but there you go. While some religious traditions designate monks as male and use the words nun and convent as the female form, this isn't strictly true or even necessary. In the general form, a monastery is a place for monks of the male and female variety. Now, monks first entered Dungeons and Dragons in 1975, when co-creator Dave Arneson wrote the second ever supplement to the most original form of D&D ever. We've talked before about the original White Box edition of D&D and about the first supplement, Greyhawk, which was based on Gary Gygax's own personal game world. Well, this second supplement was called Blackmoor, and it was based on Arneson's own personal game world. Sort of. See, there were some important differences between the first and second D&D supplements. Tim Kask, the early TSR employee we've spoken about before, once explained that Greyhawk was really the rest of the rules of D&D. That is, D&D finally felt like a complete game after the Greyhawk supplement. But Blackmore was, as Cask put it, the new stuff. It was weird, extra rules. It was truly supplemental. And it was also, by all accounts, kind of a mess. Cask claimed that while it was Arneson's name on the cover, he actually did about two-thirds of the work for the book, with a bit of help from Gary Gygax and Rob Kuntz. And that's because the quote-unquote manuscript that Arneson delivered consisted of what Cask described as a bushel of scrap papers, and that most of it was contradictory, confusing, incomplete, partially incomprehensible, lacking huge bits and pieces, and mostly gibberish. However, Blackmore did contain a few firsts for D&D, and it appears those firsts really did come from Arneson himself. It contained the first rules for underwater combat. It contained the first ever published adventure for D&D, a 20-page gem from Arneson's home game called The Temple of the Frog. And it contained what is arguably the first incarnation of the monk character class. Due to its extensive typos, references to the wrong game system, specifically D&D's predecessor Chainmail, and overly complex and detailed supplemental combat rules, Blackmore was very unpopular. Almost everything it did was discarded and left out of future products. Except for that idea of publishing detailed adventure modules and the thing about the monk. We should point out that today, there are still a lot of arguments over who invented the monk. Brian Bloom, one of the contributors to Blackmore, claims credit for doing so, but Tim Cask says that the idea belonged to Arneson and Bloom merely cleaned it up. However, here's where things get weird. The first monk was actually a type of cleric, a priestly class. 
but it combined elements of the fighter and thief classes to create an Eastern-style martial artist class. And this is where we get the interesting East and West divide. So let's talk about monks and monasteries. Monks are monastics, practitioners of monasticism, which is why they live in monasteries. What a surprise. The word monastic comes from a Greek word, which means to live alone. Several world religions have monastic traditions. For example, in Christianity, the first monastic is widely believed to be St. Paul of Thebes. When Paul was a young man, his parents died and his brother-in-law attempted to kill him for his inheritance. During this period, Christians in Rome were being heavily persecuted, so all Paul could do was flee into the desert. There, Paul lived a simple, spiritual life, and by the grace of God, he survived. A spring provided him water, fruit trees bloomed for him, and a raven delivered him daily bread. Just before he passed away from old age, he was found by Anthony the Anchorite, Anthony of Thebes, who followed a dream. Paul and Anthony had a long chat in Paul's cave, and Anthony became impressed with Paul's spiritual devotion. He noted similarities between Paul's retreat into the desert and the stories of the prophet Elijah, John the Baptist, and Jesus Christ's own retreat into the desert. And so, Anthony began to spread word of the benefits of asceticism, seclusion, and hermetic monasticism. The word hermetic comes from the Greek word ermos, which means desert, and gradually evolved into the word hermit. A century later, in Egypt, St. Pacomius established the first Cenobitic monastic tradition. Cenobitic means community-based. Basically, he started the first true Christian monastery. The monks lived an extremely rigid lifestyle, eating, sleeping, and praying at the same time. And the monks also worked for the good of the monastery. They would grow their own food, make their own wine, construct their own buildings, sew their own clothes, and so on. They produced such a surplus of goods that the monastery had its own ships sailing the Nile, selling its goods and buying up whatever the monastery could not produce for itself. The monastery became an important institution in Christianity, especially when the church gained significant land and power during the rise of feudalism and under the influence of Benedict of Nursia, who, in around 500 CE, built on Pacomius's ideals and developed a standard for Christian monasteries that still endures today, the Benedictine rule. While Christian monasteries served as a way for monks to live a spiritually pure life in accordance with the teachings of Christ and far from the evil temptations of the outside world, they also served important secular purposes. Many monasteries became places of study, scholarly work, and the preservation of knowledge. For example, Gregor Mendel, who discovered the basic rules of genetic heredity in 1863, he was a monk. William of Ockham, who wrote many significant works on logic, science, and philosophy, and introduced the famous principle of Ockham's razor, also a monk. Much of the writings that were preserved from the Middle Ages and before were preserved in monasteries. But Christianity is not the only faith with monastic traditions. We've talked before about Buddhism, but perhaps a quick review is in order. Around 400 BCE, Siddhartha Gautama was born in northern India. At that time, India was a collection of small states fighting over resources. And at the same time, a lot of people were questioning the Vedic traditions, the religion of the day. 
See, the Vedic faith was growing ever more complex as it incorporated more and more local beliefs and it involved a lot of complicated and expensive rites and sacrifices. Moreover, it defined a rigid class system known as the caste structure. People were growing skeptical and dissatisfied. Siddhartha was born to an extremely powerful and successful family of warrior kings. But it didn't make Siddhartha particularly happy. In fact, he saw that everyone around him, regardless of caste and faith, seemed to be suffering. And so, he withdrew from society and began wandering as a teacher and beggar. He taught that life was basically an illusion that we are born into until we can free ourselves from our worldly desires and the suffering they bring. And as a result, he became the first Buddha, the founder of Buddhism. Buddhism, the withdrawal from worldly desires, lends itself quite naturally to a monastic life. And Siddhartha Buddha founded several orders of monks across India, and his teachings spread. The Buddhist monastery became an endearing feature of Buddhism. In Tibet, for example, the rulers of the nation from the 16th to the 19th centuries were a line of monks called the Dalai Lamas. But we're concerned with another Buddhist in this particular story, Bodhidharma, and how he brought martial arts to China, or at least how he planted the seeds for modern martial arts. As we noted, martial arts in China were first recorded in 2600 BCE by the Emperor Huangdi the Yellow Emperor, as he was called. He had mastered the arts of wrestling and polearm combat and wrote several treatises on the subject. Many years later, his styles were combined with a violent form of skull-bashing wrestling that came from Mongolian tribesmen, and some theorize that the combined art formed the basis of Japanese sumo wrestling. That same style was also later combined with leg and foot exercises based around kicking called kimari and the combined close combat style, Shubaku, was mentioned as part of a healthy warrior lifestyle in Sun Tzu's book, The Art of War. These martial arts spread a bit across the region. But the basis for modern Chinese martial arts and the monk in D&D came in 527 CE when Bodhidharma brought a form of Buddhism to China. At least, according to legend, that's when it started. Bodhidharma traveled to China and visited a Buddhist monastery on Shaoxi Mountain. The monastery was named after the mountain, becoming the Shaolin Monastery. And there, he introduced a new form of Buddhism, Chan Buddhism, which you might know as Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism included extensive physical training for its practitioners. This physical training included 18 combat postures, called the 18 Hands of Buddhism, and that training became the basis for Shaolin Kung Fu. However, modern scholars question the veracity of this particular story, as it seems to have come from a 17th century martial arts manual of dubious accuracy. Whether Bodhidharma really did lay the groundwork for Shaolin Kung Fu, the progenitor of many martial arts practices or not, there is plenty of evidence that he did visit the Shaolin Monastery and did help spread the Zen Buddhist teachings there. And there, in the Shaoxi Mountains, in a Buddhist temple, we have the origin of the martial artist monk. The monk who seeks physical, mental, and spiritual perfection by living an ascetic lifestyle, withdrawn from the world, meditating, studying, and practicing a codified martial art. And that endearing legacy from China leads directly to... Fictional United States super spy and assassin Remo Williams.
What? Where did Rima Williams come from? We're sorry. We thought you wanted the story of the monk in Dungeons and Dragons. Rima Williams was, by accounts from both Tim Cask and Brian Bloom, the original D&D monk. See, in 1971... Warren Murphy and Richard Sapir wrote the first novel in the Destroyer series. In the book, Created the Destroyer, we meet a Newark, New Jersey police officer named Remo Williams. He's framed for murder and sentenced to death. But President Kennedy's administration has established a secret organization of extrajudicial operatives called CURE to defend the country by any means necessary. William's execution is faked, and he is trained as a deadly assassin and super spy. Specifically, he is trained in a mix of martial arts called Shinanju by an ancient master monk, Chung. Interestingly enough, the Destroyer series is quite enduring as well, with over 151 books by several different authors and an upcoming movie directed by Shane Black. Tim Cask explained that Arneson's original inspiration for the monk class in D&D was, in fact, Remo Williams. Well, Remo Williams' backstory. But the monk hasn't proved to be nearly as enduring in D&D. The monk has, in fact, been kind of a mess. The monk found its way into Advanced Dungeons & Dragons as one of the five basic classes, along with the fighter, the thief, the cleric, and the magic user. But it was widely criticized as being a weak option, being little more than an unarmored martial artist with too few hit points. It was also criticized as being a very out-of-place Eastern element in a game that was essentially set in an analog of medieval Europe. In 1981, in Dragon Magazine number 53, an article appeared rewriting, expanding, and redefining the monk. Among other things, the monk was granted mystical powers in the form of psychic abilities, psionic powers in the parlance of D&D. The Monk was also rewritten somewhat differently for the Oriental Adventures supplement in 1985. But then, the second edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons came out, and the Monk was gone altogether. Several supplements added Monk-like options in bits and pieces, but those options now had clerical abilities and were closer to a priest-like character than agile martial artist warriors. Even when the complete Psionics Handbook came out for second edition, and made many of the revised Dragon Magazine versions of the monk's powers a part of the game, the monk got none of them. And so the monk languished under 2nd edition. The monk was reintroduced as a core class in 3rd edition, but again, suffered a lot of criticism for being weak and unfocused compared to other classes. It was left out of the initial release of 4th edition and didn't reappear until 2010, a full two years after 4th ed came out. The monk benefited a great deal from the more focused design principles of 4th edition, but the strange and complex rules it used for its psychic powers, its late release, and its omission from the revised 4th edition Essentials game kept it from being a popular choice. And now it's back as a 5th edition core class, though it still seems to suffer a lot of criticism and went through many revisions during the open playtest of 5th edition. All in all, the monk seems second only to the ranger in terms of classes that the game's designers just don't know what to do with. As for how to use any of this in your game, well, monks can suffer the same problems as clerics. In D&D, not every priest is a cleric. 
Priests are merely spiritual advisors and intermediaries between the people and the gods. Clerics are chosen by the gods to work their will in the world. And likewise, not every monk in D&D should be a monk. A monk is just a monastic individual devoted to a particular way of life for spiritual reasons. But a monk can also be someone who has mastered a particular spiritual path which has given them great power. And, apart from remembering that not every monk is Remo Williams, and that some are Gregor Mendel, it's also important to remember that the Remo Williams monks are still spiritual seekers first and foremost. So give some thought to why monks in your game follow the path they do. What do they hope to gain? Apart from being able to punch through walls with their psychic zen, of course. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and gmwordoftheweek.com.